Blog Talk Radio. I'm not hearing the audio. (laughs) Well, we would just stop that. Ah, good morning. Welcome to Wanda Six, a Black Arts and Cultural Program of the African Sisters Media Network. We were going to start with the uh, trailer for Breakdown, um, San Francisco Mime Troops um, latest um, production. I think this is year sixty-four. Is that correct, Michael Dean Sullivan? Yep, year sixty-four of revolutionary comedy. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. So we'll have to come back with with that. Um, trailer. I have to see what's going on, why it's not playing. But in the meantime, um, we have um, Michael Jean Sullivan, who is no stranger to Wanda's Picks Radio. Um, he is the head writer um, and a part of the San Francisco Mime Troop Collective, and he is here as co-writer to talk about Breakdown, which is an amazing show, and um, it's up through September 4th, you know, free theater in, free political theater in the parks. Um, And also, I think you have a few indoor venues, or one indoor venue, don't you? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, we're playing indoors in San Francisco for like the first time in decades uh, (laughs) at the end of the month. So, yeah, on the, the 24th. So all those people who have always seen the mind trip out in the park and like, damn, I'm tired of sitting on the grass. My knees hurt. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Come to a so where are you? And see us. Yeah, where are you all going to be indoors? <laughs> What's the venue? <laughs> we'll be indoors uh, on the 24th at Z Space Studio in San Francisco. Uh, oh, it's yeah. a it's a uh, another performing arts space that's in the Mission District. It's uh, mm-hmm. it's pretty big, and they do a lot of really interesting and innovative stuff there, and so we're trying to start up a relationship with them so that we can do our indoor shows, every an indoor show every year there. Uh, and we're also going to be doing our Christmas show uh, there this, this year, which uh, we'll be doing the world premiere of our uh, A Red Carol, the uh, activist mm. version of A Christmas Carol. Yeah, so you're gonna be taking the ready the uh what is it, the uh the radio theater and, and, and having it on stage. Oh, that should be cool. Yeah, well and I you know, and I wrote the original version of Red Carol. I wrote mm-hmm. it years ago as a play, but we couldn't get it produced and then I uh adapted it to radio. Mm-hmm. And then after we did the radio we re- we started getting a lot more interest, so now I had to adapt it back to being a play a stage play. <laughs> Uh, oh wow! So that's what that's we did so last cool. year, and so now, yeah, because they're they're very different. Like when you write a play, you might say, okay, well, this is the cast is going to be like six people, but when you do the radio play, I could cast like twenty people because they're just mm-hmm. voices. But then I liked that version so much that when I tried to make it back into a play, a stage play, I had to try to adapt these twenty people back down to how can six people do all of that, you know. <laughs> So, uh, but yeah, and that, and that with that adaptation, Red Carol, it all takes place at a uh, at a homeless encampment, and it's these mm. people oh. who are putting on Christmas carols for this audience, 
but they're talking about the real economic issues that people always overlook. They always want to have Christmas Carol be this happy story. And it is a, it's not a sad story, but it's a serious story about mm-hmm. class and about oppression and about, you know, the difficulties of living in a world that doesn't care if you live or die. And uh, theaters always want to make it a happy story about a Scrooge turns out to be a nice guy, everything's fine. But no, it's not, that's not what it's, the book really isn't just about that. So I wanted to write one that was a little more like grab the audience and shake them and go, no, it's up to you to change the world. It's not up to Scrooge changing. You have to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wow, mean, it sounds like a prequel to Breakdown. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really is. They are actually kind of linked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we wow. were writing I, with Breakdown, uh, you know, we were trying as, every year trying to figure out what is going to be the issue that we're going to talk about for a Mind Troop show. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and for those people who out there think in Mind Troop, yeah, we don't do silent mime. We do political, musical, comedies. The, it's like seeing a Broadway show, only it's on a really small stage, and it has a point. Um, and so... Uh, uh, trying to figure out what to do, and one of our newer members, collective members, Marie Cartier, who's also has done some writing on some of the shows. She's a social worker, and it's her day job, and she works mm-hmm. in a district in San Francisco called the Tenderloin. And so she was like, "I'd really like to do something about, um, you know, uh, the plight of the people who live in the Tenderloin, and, and uh, you know, and have a character maybe that's a social worker." And and I said, well, that's that's really important, but I also want to do something about uh, propaganda. The propaganda that is being used and spewed about San Francisco and the Tenderloin nationally, uh, and how it's not really about what's going on in San Francisco. San Francisco is struggling, but the whole country is struggling. Every place is still struggling with uh, unemployment you know, uh, factories being closed down. People keep saying unemployment is down. When they say that, what they mean is that fewer people are applying for unemployment because their weeks have run out. They're just as unemployed as they were before, but they fall off the register because they're not receiving unemployment benefits. So it's a much more complex answer. But people are struggling all over the country. But the propaganda war against San Francisco, and specifically the Tenderloin, is not about helping people. It is about making making any progressive or liberal solutions that have come up. It's about trying to make them look bad. So it is a war on the idea of San Francisco, not on actually what's happening here. And so that's what I wanted to talk about. And so, you know, I came up with this idea of these three women, one who's unhoused and living on the street, another is the social worker who is helping her, and another is the reporter, the Fox News reporter, who is part of the propaganda war. And so trying to show these three women in the same, in, in, in the same area and how what's happening for them and what they're doing is uh, overlaps and um, bounces off each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And as I was saying before we um, uh, went live, um, the uh, the writing is amazing. Uh, some of the things that come out of, um, oh, wow, these characters' mouths, I'm thinking of the uh, the journalist, uh, Marcia, I think her last name is Marcia Stone. Marcia Stone, yeah. 
Yeah, who's with Fox News, and and she's trying to like hold on to her her job because her ratings are going down, and so she has this great idea. And um, but as she they're sort of like pitching it, I'm just like looking at the writing. I'll be right black. Um, <laughs> yeah. And some of the other things she says, and um, um, and and you were you were saying before we because uh, you're um you have a degree in um. African American history or politics or something from San Francisco no, State. I um, actually like, don't have a degree. I'm one of those oh. people. I went to college uh, studying history. I wanted to be actually I okay. wanted to be a history teacher with an emphasis mm-hmm. on politics. But mm-hmm. right before I mean literally like a semester before I got my degree uh, in the summer, I got cast in a, uh, a Shakespeare festival and it overlapped with the semester, so I couldn't go back to school that fall. And then the class I needed to get to re- to uh, to graduate wasn't offered in the spring, so then I ha- was going to have to wait a full year to go back. And when I was going to go back, I got cast in another Shakespeare festival, and I couldn't go to school. And so, at some point, I will go back. I know there are like three schools that are, I've been dealing with trying to. Each one is like, "What do we have to do to get you to get your degree?" And I'm like, uh, "Make it free." Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, well, at this point, you know, it's like somebody should just give you a degree. Yeah. Um, you've already done all point, the work. I'm like, I, 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 like, guest lectured at these colleges, you know. Mm-hmm. They're still like, oh, yeah, we should we should do that. But, yeah, the, but my, my focus and emphasis has always been uh, history and politics. That's just the way my parents raised us. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes, yes. And you've had some really wonderful um, uh uh, performances that, and also plays that you've written about, you know, growing up in in a family, you know, where, um, you know, carrying a, a poster, you know, and uh, at a at a at a partic- at a political rally, you know, sort of like that's how you came up, you know, as a kid. Yeah, it sounds really exciting. Yeah, and and I mean it. It definitely gives you a perspective. I saw somebody recently. It was like. You know, when I was a kid, it was like the Black Panthers, the Irish Republican Army, and the Palestinian Liberation Organization. These were the three, or it was like, these are the people who are internationally fighting for, you know, freedom and equality and justice and against oppression and against colonialism. And so uh, that idea, you know, you either you can get to a point in your life where you go, man, politics is too hard. It's just too much of a struggle, and things are more complex mm-hmm. than I thought. But you can also end up going, things are complex, but certain underlying issues, whether you totally agree with the organization or not, colonialism is always bad. You know, it is always about theft and murder and violence and brutality. Yeah, um, you just have to uh, struggle against it, no matter what. And whether it's physical or it's emotional or it's psychological colonialism, you know, the class war mm-hmm. is not going to end. So you have to keep fighting it. Racism is always a problem. And until we can have real justice, freedom, and equality, it is always going to be a problem. Sexism, xenophobia. Are you part of the struggle to defeat these things, the fight to defeat them, or do you just get tired? And for me, I just haven't gotten tired. Mhm. Yeah. Well, that's good. 
I'm glad you haven't gotten tired. So you have a you have performed, I think, everywhere. Um, I think all of the regional theaters, and you've also traveled and performed internationally. And um, you know, you've gotten a lot of awards. You're the author of the internationally produced stage adaptation of George Orwell's, not, Orwell's 1984, and of the critically acclaimed The Great Con. And in 2022, you were awarded the Guggenheim Fellowship as a dramatist. Congratulations. And people can read all about you and stay uh, connected um, at com. So tell us about about this play, the characters, like, um, and also tell us about the cast, who is whom. Um, I, don't, I didn't know that Jamila Cross was one of, the uh, collective. Did I miss something, or is this her first year? Oh no, she's not. She's not. She's not in the collective yet. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> a couple of things. Things that are different. Like when people have seen Minecraft shows, they do get used to seeing kind of at least some of the cast as normally regular collective members that they've seen for years. You know, I'm in the show, or Valina Brown, or Keiko Shibasato Carrera, or Leslie, uh, Alisa Hori Garcia. Different collective members who have been around for some time. But this year, um, since I was writing the show and directing the show, I couldn't be in it. And Melina was taking time off because she's teaching. Keiko was doing a show at somewhere else. Denver is uh, – Alisa is in Denver. So – and there are all these younger actors that I really wanted to work with. And, um, and I knew them from different places. Like Jamila Cross and Kina Cantor were both in The Great Con at SF Playhouse. So they did. So that was where I had a chance to work with them. And uh, Jed Passario, I'd known for years, and he did the workshop of A Red Carol last year. So those mm-hmm. three actors were younger actors that the Mind Troop hadn't worked with, but I'd worked with. And uh, Alicia Nelson had done last year's Mind Troop show. She did Back to the Way Things Were, and, and I'd cast her because she was somebody that I really liked and thought would be um, a fun addition to our company. And then uh, Andre Amaradico, who's also in the show, he's the only collective member on stage. And this is like his fifth show with the Mind Troop. So really it is a much younger cast than we've used for some time. But I think it's really important for us to continue to bring in new people, bring in younger folks uh, uh, if it's appropriate, and you know, so that the company can continue to grow and be here when the rest of us are dead, um, which hopefully won't be soon. <laughs> And so the characters, uh, it, like I said, the play really revolves around these three women. Um, mm-hmm. There's uh, Yume, who is a young woman who lives on the streets in uh, the Tenderloin, which is this district for those national people. It's this district in downtown San Francisco. It is one of the very few in the country, very few downtown residential districts. Normally that would just be businesses and it would be hotels and all of that, but the Tenderloin is specifically a residential district, and the, the people who live there have worked really hard at keeping it that. It is the most affordable district uh, neighborhood in San Francisco for a bunch of reasons, but it is affordable. Um, and so you may live on the uh, but it's, it's unhoused. She lives on the street. She's one of those people who she has her tent on the sidewalk. She cut, gets out, and she's like screaming at people on the street. But the question really is, why? You know, we see these people every day if you walk downtown. 
but they have lives and pasts and history. This isn't their goal. Their life dream wasn't to be in this situation. What happened to them? And they have a community of people. And that was something I felt was really important to show is that these two people who are living on the streets for whatever reason, they're part of a community, not just of other people living on the streets, but of the neighborhood in which they live. So Yume has a history that we don't know uh, why, how she ended up there. And then there's a, a character, uh, Sadia, who is a um, social worker who works in the, is also, you know, in San Francisco and, you know, one of the things about the United States is the more we say a job is important, um, the less we pay them. So like teachers, social workers, you know, uh, public health people, all of these, we say these jobs are incredibly important, so let's not pay them very much, for some, you know, as opposed to throwing money at Elon Musk, uh, you know, through tax breaks and stuff. Um, so Sadia is assigned this person. And she has to get to know her. She has to figure out what her story is. She has to. Her job isn't to solve all of Yume's problems. It's just to get her some secure housing and maybe some income to find a job for her. But it's not to figure out everything for her. It's just to get her back into functioning. And then the other, uh, the other, those three characters is Marcia Stone, who is the like as you were saying earlier the uh, Fox News special report reporter who has her specials of, you know, the dark side of civil rights, and I'll be right black, um, that she has decided that, yeah, the easiest way to make it as a black person in the United States, the way that you will be most supported is to be conservative. If you're a uh, well-spoken, good-looking black conservative, somebody's going to hire you to be on television, to be on the radio, you will get a job because, um, you know, the white conservatives basically need someone to make them not look like racist. So uh, I wanted to have this character, and she's also based on a character that we had a couple of years. I wrote for uh, uh, the radio show when we were doing radio plays during the pandemic and we couldn't do live shows. We had, I wrote a series called The Black Fox, which was a character um, who was a, a, a reporter that had a series on Fox. And it was very much about – that show was about racism, but it was also about sexism. It was about how she is being treated by her bosses as this just this doll, just this, you know, they just expect her. They're always flirting with her. They're always trying to, you know – uh, come on to her and stuff until finally, when she finally refuses her boss, and he's like, oh, well, then we'll replace you with another beautiful woman. That's the only reason you're here. So that show was about sexism in the workplace, but I wanted to use that character again in this show. So those are the main three women and how they interact. And then there's the uh, Andre plays uh, Miss, uh, Mr. Stereos, who is an older man who owns a store in the Tenderloin, and he's just grown up with this is the way the world is. And these are my neighbors. The people living on the street are my neighbors, my fellow business people, whatever. He understands the history of the area. And then Jed Passario plays Felix, who is kind of like a street entrepreneur. He's always trying to figure out uh, some way to get off the streets. How can he get enough money to get off the streets? So he's always coming up with plans, like he comes up with, you know, 
uh, he'll take everybody's shopping carts and then rent them back to them, or he'll uh, 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 he uh, uh, he'll come up he'll come up with a crypto coin called the hobo coin, and he'll make money off of that. He's always kind of scheming and trying to figure stuff out because he doesn't want to be on the street. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of yeah. the world of the tenderloin. Oh, and this is a show that for the first time I actually wrote in Rupert Murdoch as a character. Mm-hmm. Normally for mind troop shows. Um, I'll do something where it's kind of like it's not Fox News, it's Faux News, F A U X. It's always something else. It would be Rupert Murdoch, it'd be Rupert Burdock, something like that. There'd always be some kind of pun. And this time I was like, times are tough, things are difficult, and and this isn't a situation where I want to use a metaphor or a simile. It's just Rupert Murdoch, you know. It's just Fox News as an example, as real world example. One of the things that's happened though is. Uh, some local television stations have said they don't want to cover the sh- our show. They don't want to even talk mm. about our show because we specifically mention Rupert Murdoch and Fox in a critical way, and they don't want to be seen. They're a little scared of being seen as criticizing Fox. Wow, really? Yeah. Wow, wow, that's real-world stuff. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Wow, wow. Gosh, um, wow, that's really something. I was um, I also wanted you to mention um, some of the uh, other characters because I I really like. I, thanks for pronouncing these names. I didn't know how to pronounce um, Mr. Uh, Stereos's because uh, yeah. it's spelled in a different way. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, you think it was, it. it's like stereo, but it's actually pronounced right. stereos. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And um and he's uh he's Yume's friend and then Yume, she's kind of she's young and she's kind of haunted, um, like yeah. literally, which is kind of interesting. And then um uh uh Sadia, you know, the social worker, <laughs> when we meet her, she's trying to do a, a mental health day and she gets called um, you know, to work because um, mm-hmm. Her colleague has quit, and she has to take on more cases, um, trying to get people housed and get them medical uh, treat, medical support, and things like that. Um, and so, you know, when I saw the title breakdown, I thought about it. Um, you know, not necessarily as political breakdown, but you know, breaking down, you know, or trying to break down people's spirits or mm-hmm. you know, mental health. You know, cry for help. You know, breakdown. Uh, there are a whole lot of ways you could read read the title of the work, and um, and then and then we have the older woman who um, you know who loses her uh, her name is Agatha and I really like Agatha Christie. Yeah. So that's what I thought about when I saw her name. Um, you know, we meet her and she's just trying to make sense of this because she's newly um, unhoused, which is interesting. Yeah. Which I, I felt like that character, I really wanted um, – she's based in part on uh, some true stories mm-hmm. out of San Francisco where people have, you know, uh, retired people who, through mm-hmm. no fault of their own, have uh, something, mislaid paper, a signed document that they got talked into signing or whatever, that they suddenly mm-hmm. end up being evicted from mm-hmm. the homes they've been in for, you know, 20, 30 years and – they have the you know their their families are gone you know they maybe didn't have children in the case of some of these people and they don't want to say they're homeless but essentially they are 
You know, mm-hmm. suddenly they're having to stay with other people. Suddenly they're having to stay in hotels. They're eating up their savings, their retirement, all of this, and they're trying to, to make sense of it. And I wanted to make sure to put that character in because she was doing everything right, and she still ended up in this situation because it's so easy for people to think, well, somebody's unhoused. That would never happen to me. That would never mm-hmm. happen to anybody I know. That would be my family member, my kid. Nobody. That wouldn't happen. And it's like, no, actually – um, like one of the things that the uh, Felix character says is that their fa- his family was doing fine, mm-hmm. and they had a home. But then his father got sick. His father got sick, and so mother had to quit work to take care of him, and they had to sell the house to ca- cover his medical bills. And then he passed away, and then they didn't have a home, and mother didn't have a job, and they became homeless. Most of the people mm-hmm. on the street, as far as my research, uh, are. You know, most of the people who are on the streets in San Francisco used to pay rent in San Francisco. They used to, they mm-hmm. lived here, and they, they really still do. And, but one of the major reasons that people become unhoused is medical bills. Mm-hmm. You know, just something happens, and they, somebody has to quit their job to take care of someone else. They loot, they spend their savings, everything's gone, and then the person passes away, and then they have nothing. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you know, and they might be—they're tr- trying to get back on their feet, but in the meantime, they—they they can't leave the city because what support system they have is still here. Their friends are still mm-hmm. here, but it doesn't mean they can live with their friends. And they can't get a job because they, you know, can't necessarily get the job they had before, and they can't get another job because they don't have an address. So it's a very steep, slippery slope when it comes to medical bills, or mm-hmm. like I said, just being out of your house being pushed out because somebody thinks that your landlord feels like they can make more money renting it to someone else or making it into a condo. So this really Mm -hmm. can happen to you. And that's why, like I said, with Agatha, I really wanted to make that clear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I I like her her character and and just, you know, her trying to, like, wrap her mind around, no, I'm not homeless. You know, I'm, I'm at this hotel but it's too expensive, I need to find something better. And so then she's getting directed to, you know, um, support services in the area that can help her find more affordable housing. And I think about all of the – my father used to live in the Tenderloin before we moved him closer to us because he lost his housing um, in Bayview. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Tenderloin has affordable housing. And they have a a lot of elders or seniors that live in the Tenderloin um, in, mm-hmm. in some of these um, apartments, um, cause there are there are a lot lot of lot of, lot of housing <laughs> um, in in yeah. the Tenderloin, um, you know, and you know, you what do you call it? Um, studios, you know, one bedroom. Yeah, well, they're um, they're they're SRO, mm-hmm. single resident occupancy, and they were mm-hmm. built back. A, some of them are very old, you know, hundred year old building. They were built for basically the single men and women who are working in stores and businesses in downtown San Francisco. So people who worked at Macy's or Woolworths or Emporium or all of those stores, this was a place where they could be close to, close to their work, but it was not meant for families. It was just for single men and women. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so we still have all of those. And, yes, uh, what ends up happening is, and these are, it is just a room. It's a room. It doesn't have a bathroom. It is a room. You share a bathroom, mm-hmm. the bathroom's down the hall. Uh, because right. this isn't supposed to be where you're going to end up. But as housing became more and more expensive in San Francisco, people that end up at SROs 
sometimes can't easily find another place to live. So they end up spending mm-hmm. more of their lives than they thought they were going to at an SRO, and maybe their whole lives. Uh, mm-hmm. But it is what they can afford. And again, and that's, and, and that's also SROs, SROs started getting a really bad reputation when the city started signing contracts with the people who own the SROs, those corporations, so that they would house the unhoused people. So if you're unhoused in San Francisco and you can get on the right list at the right time, follow the rules, and and at the same time not get pushed off by because uh, some rule that you didn't even know existed or some rule that somebody made up, if you get through all of that and you get housing, it's only going to be in an SRO. And the people mm-hmm. who own the SROs, uh, make a lot of money from the city, and they don't necessarily keep their places up very well. You know, there are rats and mice and cockroaches, and and uh, some of them are some of them are fine, and some of them aren't fine. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, it, there are a lot of different things going on that, uh, like I said, a lot of steps, a lot of difficulties. And instead, what so many people get frustrated at the symptom, which is, and the symptom is people living in the street. The symptom yeah. is, uh, you know, tents on the sidewalk when you're downtown. That is a symptom of a greater problem, but instead people attack the symptom. They say the problem is the unhoused. The problem is these homeless people. And it's like that's not the problem. The problem is uh, not just how expensive it is to live in San Francisco, but also um, a great, you know, they keep saying they're building new housing in San Francisco, but what they're building is upscale housing, which then gets purchased by people as second homes. So you have people from around the country who want to have a place in San Francisco. They already own a home somewhere else, but they'll buy a condo in San Francisco, which will sit empty for most of the year until they sh- they want to be here in the summer because New York's too hot or something. Those places... Having people who have second homes here and also a thing called land banking where people from other countries buy homes in San Francisco that sit empty. They buy homes and condos that sit empty because it's a way to just have some money uh, instead of just in a bank. They own something, but they don't rent those spaces out, so they just sit empty. And and they, they, they buy businesses and they let the business die. They don't care about the business. They don't care about making money off the property. They just want to own the property as a long-term investment, something they can sell eventually. Nobody lives there. So between land banking and second homes, these are two problems that people don't even talk about much. There are so many uh, – housing is such a, um, a – com- it's not really complex. It's just broader, a broader problem, and each one of these things needs to be addressed. But instead, as a City, uh, city government, everything just focuses on the people living in the streets and knows we've got to get rid of them because they're bad for business, which is like mm-hmm. the meanest thing in the world to say. Yes. You know, that yeah, the people yeah. who are suffering are the problem. In any situation, that is a messed up thing to say. Yeah. Yeah, yes, it is. Yes, it is. And, and you may... Um, I really, I really like her character. You know the, the character you all have created. Um, looking forward to seeing how how it plays out on stage, um, because these 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 uh, folks making these deals, you know, it's like okay, we're gonna sell this, we're gonna, 
you know, try to get rid of these 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 residents so then we can raise the rent. And they're just, you know, moving and talking on their phones in in this space, you know, as they're walking through this area. And and Yume says, you know, she tries to make herself visible to them, but she mm-hmm. is invisible. I mean, literally invisible. And I just think about that. I think about, you know, our history as people of African descent and how you know, we we are literally, you know, like the furniture in a in a in a room, you know, mm-hmm. or 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 um or we don't exist at all, you know, um you know, stepping off the sidewalk because we our ancestors couldn't walk on the sidewalk with certain people, and and and, and you know, and then you just think about how people bump into you when you're walking like you don't exist because you don't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there yeah. people are like so intent on whatever they're talking about that all of the space on the sidewalk belongs to them. You know, it's all their personal mm-hmm. space, and if you're in the way, you know you're gonna get walked into. And if you're on the in in the crosswalk, you know the car is not gonna stop for you, even if the light is green for you, because they want to yeah. make a right turn. And like, so what? There's a stop stop light. I'm just going to roll into my right turn and, oh, there was a pedestrian there. You know, they don't matter if you didn't see them. Mm-hmm. Hopefully you saw them because I see them. That's why I'm talking to you. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, that yeah. song, you know, I mean, look at, look me in the eye, you know, see me, and they don't see her. And then she talks about yeah. how, you know, her soul, something, something's been taken from her. Like, give it back what you took. It's like that mm-hmm. is really really interesting, you know, just sort of the way that you all have developed, you know, that character. Yeah, well, that idea of, you know, of, there was a few years ago, I was working mm-hmm. on something else for the Mind Troop, I think, and I was, I was writing something, and I really started thinking about how how difficult it would be if you were going through your life, and this is, you know, was it was it Bell Hooks who said, "Ride is the voice of the unheard"? Um, uh, that if you were going through your life and every day people acted like they didn't even see you, you know, no matter what you did, when you said hi to them or whatever, it's like you're a ghost in their life. They don't, you know, what? How would that affect you psychologically? You would start getting louder and louder and louder because. You need to be seen. You need to, just psychologically, I exist in this space. Acknowledge me. <clears throat> and so if they're not acknowledging you, you're going to get louder and louder. And the problem is the louder you get, the more they ignore you. So you can have people who are screaming on the street for attention, literally screaming on the street for attention, and people walk by them and they totally shut down. And yes, this person probably has, uh, they have issues. They might have different, you know, chemical imbalances in their bodies that are, that are putting them in the situation, but they're not being aided by being ignored. And so often people who are living on the street and they're asking you for money because they need money to survive. If you don't have anything to give them, just say, I'm sorry, I can't afford anything right now. I can't spare any change, but, you know, good luck. And... I personally, because I, you know, doing shows like it as an actor, being at, at, at a playhouse or rehearsing downtown, um, I always try to bring money 
to remember to bring, you know, money so that I can give out. But if I can't and I tell people, I'm sorry, I don't have anything right now, they're, so, they're just like, well, thank you. Thank you for seeing me. Mm-hmm. Thanks for the thought, you know, uh, because it's at least an acknowledgement of their humanity. It is the very least you can do, you know, is to acknowledge mm-hmm. people as fellow human beings. Uh, and unfortunately, people think that, well, I'm not being mean to this person, so by not doing anything, I'm kind of being neutral. And it's like, no, you're being mean by ignoring them. Mm-hmm. Just a head nod, eye contact, something. It's not like they're going to become werewolves because you've seen, they, they, oh, they need eye contact with me. Now I can attack them. No. There are going to be people who are going to be very difficult and all up in your face. But they were going to do that anyway. You know, um, but for the most part, these are people just trying to live their lives and at least acknowledge them as human beings. So, yeah, so that's mm-hmm. why that part, when I was writing that part, and Daniel Savio, who wrote the song, we mm-hmm. talked about that a lot. And he talked about how much, before he'd written the song, how much the the, the scene affected him personally and inspired him because he was like, he had to realize that he was not making eye contact with people. And so then he wrote this amazing song, which is, his, which is you know, his outrage um, over how people are being treated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to play that now. Look me in the eye. Spare change? Spare change? So I tell her, I said, Margaret, if you don't sign the lease, I will. Excuse me, what kind of fool let the two-bedroom, two-and-a-half bath in Vernal Heights slip through their fingers? Fair change. The value was only going to go up when all the old tenants get moved out. Hey, lady, it's up on Folsom. You see me, I see you see me, but you walk on by. I just need a couple bucks near the park. You hear me, I know you hear me, but there's no reply. I'm just a couple of quarters. Beautiful view of the bay. Every day you see me, you look me in the eye. You could say hello and let me know you don't want me to die. With some change or just a smile or a book or even chat a while. Say sorry, I can't today. And I see. the other way. Yeah. I see you see me. Don't look the other way. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, it is, like with every Mind Troop show, you know, we're always trying to activate the audience. We want Mm -hmm. people to see who are, you know, who are the racists? Who are the sexists? Who is the class enemy? Who is the oppressor? How are we all suffering under capitalism? But at the same time, we also want to point out to the audience how they might be complicit. How are they tacitly approving of the situation that we're all suffering under? How are they um, failing to overthrow their own oppressor? You know, we want to activate people. Using comedy, using music, using theatricality, we want to activate people so that they feel like they can be part of, you know, the fight for justice. Hmm. Yes, yes. I really like the way that um, 
and uh, I'm not sure how to do the accent. Um, uh, Stereos, how do you yeah. pronounce his name? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, how he he um, you know he talks to to Yume and he says, you know, I remember when you know you first arrived, you know, here because she sleeps. Her tent is in his doorway, and I'm, you know, I never thought about that. Sometimes it's a relationship. Like the person doesn't just camp out in front of this venue, um, this store, this business. That the um, the business owner allows this to happen. Like it's okay with the business owner. So I'm like, oh, this is another perspective on this. I never thought about that before. Um, yeah, I really, really like that particular, um, you know, writing in 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 the uh, in the script that we get a chance to to hear that conversation because I don't I don't think I've ever heard it before. Well, that was like I said. I wanted to make sure that uh, we see the the tenderloin is a neighborhood and not a district. We always mm-hmm. think of the tenderloin district like it's this. Like, it's just these lines on the ground, and it's, this is the representative. And we see it really from the Chamber of Commerce point of view. But it is a neighborhood, just like every other neighborhood. And people get to know each other, and there are going to be problem people in your neighborhood, and there's going to be friendships, and there's going to be families raised. There are thousands of children who live in the Tenderloin. There are schools there. If you go to the Tenderloin, you'll see people living on the streets and businesses struggling. But you'll also see children being all led off to the library. And, and uh, oh, there's also, I recommend if people wanted to know more about the Tenderloin, there's a Tenderloin Museum mm, in the Tenderloin. Yes. Look it up. It's super useful. <laughs> it is really amazing understanding mm-hmm. the history of the neighborhood and how, you know, the first, uh, the first uh, 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 real uh, place in the United States where drag queens really stood up and, and ride it. It wasn't the Castro, and it wasn't Stonewall. It was in the Tenderloin. The, all, so many of the unions in the United States, their Western headquarters were in the Tenderloin. Uh, there used to be something called the California Labor School, which was where activists and organizers from around the country would all come and study. Paul Robeson taught a workshop there. All these people that came there, it was in the Tenderloin. The Tenderloin was this activist, um, always very uh, uh, diverse and accepting neighborhood. And seeing it as a neighborhood, there's a point in the show where Dereos has a whole song that is about the history of the neighborhood. How, you know, Miles Davis and Thelonious Monk played the Blackhawk. That was in the Tenderloin. Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't even put in everything that I wanted to, you know. Uh, the, you know, recording studios that are in the Tenderloin, you know, Lenny Bruce recorded in the Tenderloin, and, and all of these, all of this stuff that happened there in this neighborhood that has been reduced in the propaganda war against it to just, well, look at all these homeless people, and there are, there are not many white people here. And, but even if you just walk down the street and there are people in their tents, they're a community. They're a group of people, and they're talking to each other and, you know, playing cards or whatever, that that wherever there's going to be multiple people, there's, you're going to end up with a community, you know? Mm-hmm. And to recognize it as that rather than as just this bottom-of-the-barrel, you know, 
it's disgusting, it's horrible. Sure, you know, it'd be nice if we had more public bathrooms in San Francisco. We don't have many at all. Uh, we have them in areas where tourists go. Um, we don't have, there are laws in Europe where anybody can use a bathroom at a restaurant. You cannot refuse someone use of a bathroom. In the United States, huh. people do That's it all the time. great. Yeah, that they do. They say bathrooms are not for the public. They're signs. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. They're signs that you have to. You have to be. A, you have to be. Because the trick is, they'll say, "Oh, well, you got to buy something at the store," but they can also refuse service to anybody they want to. Mm-hmm. So if you go in and say, "I'm going to buy a pack of gum and can I use your bathroom?" They can still say no because they can refuse the right. service. Whereas there are towns, I think Barcelona, Paris might have it. There are different towns and whole countries, but they pass laws that just say. You cannot refuse the bathroom to anybody. That, just that, would make such a big deal. And the reason we have those laws in the United States are so puritanical. They are just puritanical laws. The reason we don't use it, let them do that, is because, oh, they're going to go in there and use drugs. And the other one, and this is a serious one, was we cannot let women use public bathrooms because they'll be, it'll just be a place where prostitutes go. Prostitutes will take their johns into bathrooms. There was a whole movement before when public bathrooms were first becoming a thing in the United States and England where they were going to have them only for men because women, they were like, it's just going to get filled with hookers and their johns. That's why if you go into old buildings like in New York or Philadelphia or East Coast mainly, but also here, there are always more men's bathrooms. Yes. It's because there used to be only men's bathrooms. They had to convert them wow. into women's bathrooms because of the law. But before that, they were like, no, women, if you want to go to the bathroom, you shouldn't be out anyway. You should be at home. Hmm. If you're out walking the street, you're a streetwalker. So, uh, so that difficulty does puritanical, ridiculous rules that mean that people are living on the street and we see them and we go, oh, man, they're just peeing over here. They're peeing in the corner. Where are they supposed to pee? Mm-hmm. If there right. isn't a public bathroom there, where are they supposed to go? The restaurants won't let them in to use the bathroom. Mm-hmm. So we, again, end up judging the symptom rather than mm-hmm. changing the problem and fixing the problem. Yeah. It's so cruel. And, mm. uh, and, and again, and politicians use... Uh, the, the the threat of homelessness to keep their constituents in line. You know, you better not complain about this, kick you out on the street. Mm-hmm. You know? Right. And, ooh, aren't they yeah. scary? Don't we need more cops? Don't we need more of this? We need to protect you from those people rather than using that money to help. Like I said, it is, most of the time, it is simply cruel. The current administration in San Francisco, City Hall, uh, got rid of, uh, underfunded, in the last mayor's budget, underfunded a bunch of nonprofits that were helping people in the Tenderloin. They mm. just had their, their, their government money got cut. But what didn't get cut, what got increased, was police. Oh. Yeah. That was the mayor's budget that came out. Um, right around the time that we were, I was writing the show, and we were in rehearsal, and that budget landed, so I started putting that in, saying, this is what is happening. Why hmm. is it that it is, this is what's happened, you know? Hmm. 
All these mm-hmm. people living on the streets, we need more cops and not more services. That's uh, right. Yeah, yeah. It's just hard yeah, the, Right. In in that scene, um, you know, going back to um the scene with um Marcia um Stone and, you know, and Rupert Murdoch and the um I guess the producer at Fox, um, you know, and who is <laughs> who is chasing uh Marcia around around the office and and then she's, you know, making her pitch. Um, you know, they're talking about how uh, you know, you know, what happened in the Fillmore, you know, which is no longer the mm-hmm. the Fillmore, you know, it's a done deal and oh, you know, we did this and we did that and and now um, you know, they're looking at um the tenderloin and and the politics of the tenderloin and and we were talking about conservatism and um and this this black woman who is a conservative and um and and how how that that sells and and you were saying that republicans went off you know before we got um we came on the air the republicans have always had or it's not new for them to have you know black um running mates and mm-hmm. uh, so what else, I was wondering if you, if you could talk a little bit about that, because I'm thinking about, you know, maybe we could end our conversation with um, blacks on the right and red all over, um, <laughs> but putting that in yeah. context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that, you know, think about it. When, when, um, when Barack Obama won, it was one of the reasons it was such a great surprise was because people thought that call Colin Powell was going to be the first black president of the United States running as mm-hmm. a Republican. Yeah. And before that, you know, Jesse Jackson had run years ago. But I remember seeing even at the time, uh, I think it was Chris Rock who said, you know, there's no way Jesse Jackson was going to win. The first black president of the United States is going to be a Republican. And Alan Keyes used to run every year. And the guy who was at, the, was at uh, Godfather Pizza uh, who passed away, mm-hmm. you know, there have been black people running – as Republicans, pretty much every every cycle, every presidential cycle, for decades, the Democrats are so afraid of being labeled uh, socialists or progressives. They're so afraid that that was why getting uh, Obama in was – the fact that he got the nomination and then won easily should have taught the Democrats that being okay with black people is okay. You know, but Mm -hmm. the Republicans have managed, I should say the conservatives in the country have managed, like, like during the, the, um, when, when Donald Trump was running the first time he was running against Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton always talked about the middle class in the United States. Now, there's no such thing as a middle class. It doesn't exist. It's a, it's a false term. You're working class. If you work for a living and you rely on that money, you have a boss, you're a worker. Um, but the Democrats are always very afraid of saying working class. Donald Trump said working class. He talked about doing stuff for the working class, and he got a bunch of white working class people to vote for him, even though he's a billionaire and he doesn't give a damn about them. But at least he talked about them. The Democrats always want to be like, well, we don't want to sound too this. We don't want to sound too progressive. We don't want to sound too diverse. We don't want to sound too socialist. We don't want to sound um, – and at the same time, so, yeah, if you look at this year, I, I, there's at least two, maybe three Republican, black Republicans running for president. 
the easiest way to make money in journalism is to be a black conservative because, as we were saying earlier, um, the conservative movement wants to prove that it's not as racist as it actually really is. So they will grab you and pay you lots of money and put you on every stage. Remember when uh, Trump was running for re-election, and every time you saw him at any thing, if you ever watched him or on the news or anything, he'd be up there talking at his podium, and behind him would be one black guy. Do you remember mm-hmm. that? Yes, I do. It, it I never knew who he was, guy. but it, I do remember that. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and it was the same black guy. Because he was part of their campaign, you know. <laughs> he does what he did for a living was to be. And at one point, um, Trump actually from his podium said, "Where's my black guy?" And he turned and he's like, "There wow. he is, there's my black guy." Yeah. Um, but that's oh, what he was he doing didn't, for he a didn't, living. He didn't have a name. He was the black guy. He didn't have a name. He was having himself black man. Um, and so people like Candace Owens and uh, Condoleezza Rice. People who have managed, and like I said, and Alan Keyes and all of those folks who, um, you know, no matter how much they're denigrated and insulted and they know that as soon as they leave the room, the conversation is basically going to be how did that black person get in here in the first place, mm-hmm. this is what they do for a living, you know. Um, they have separated themselves from uh, sometimes their family and friends. Because it's easier money. I mean, I'm sure some of them are true believers, which is weird. But it is um, it's, it's frightening. But there have always been people like this who they see a way to to make a living, and so they're doing it. Like I said, and, and they may actually be true believers, but nothing they're saying really makes sense. And again, they're surrounded by racists. If the people you're hanging out with have a Confederate flag anywhere in their personal property, you're in the wrong crowd. Um, but, you know, and so, so with Marcia Stone, her character, she's got a history. She's like her parents were struggling, and, and she's not struggling. So this makes absolute both financial and psychological sense for her. But, you know, so she's, she's red, white, and black. Um. <laughs> wow! <laughs> oh, this is so great. Yeah, yeah. So, um, one of the folks know we're speaking to Michael Jean Sullivan about the um, San Francisco Mime Troops current production breakdown, which continues through September fourth, and you can visit SF mt.org for the schedule so that you can make sure that you can find out where the Mime Troop is coming near you um, uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area. And again, you know, there is that indoor uh, venue, uh, Z-Space, so those who, you know, um, don't want to be outdoors um, on the grass. (laughs) And there's a whole lot of other great information um, at the the website. Like there's... um, um, you all have, is it like two, like you have a musical um, piece that I was listening to. It's really, really nice. Um, uh, is that, is it, is it, can you get it as a CD or, or you could just get it as a streamed um Oh, well, yeah, we, I mean, no, we record work? every show. We do. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, also for people who aren't in the Bay Area, this show, Breakdown, you could see it on Vimeo for free. 
What? Um, really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. So anywhere in the world you can see it. Uh, it. It'll say, if you go to Vimeo or you go to our website and it'll say, you know, you can view this now, and you go on and it'll say it costs $20 because we're a nonprofit theater company that doesn't take corporate money. So as a theater of the people, we rely on the people for support. But at the same time, we also do free shows. So if you go online and you can't afford to donate to see the show, you can put in a, a code to see the show for free online. The code is POWER TO THE PEOPLE, all caps, no spaces. Put in POWER oh, TO THE PEOPLE, yeah. and you can watch the show for free anywhere you are. Oh, that is so cool. Yeah, and you said that um, um, that unfortunately you can't go and watch, you can't watch any of the shows afterwards. But, um, oh, yeah, I did. I just noticed that um, that it's free for viewing through September fourth. Whoa, yeah. that's heck of cool. Yeah, power to the yeah, people. Yeah, we, well, we're trying to. When when the pandemic hit and we started doing the radio plays, and we mm-hmm. realized that this was another way for to get the message out, and we are members of the Actors Union, uh, Actors Equity, but we got a deal. We worked with Actors Equity and said, well, this is what we really would like to do, and they were like, okay, if you do it this way. Um, and it's only for a limited time. You guys can, you know, get your plays everywhere. And theater on film always looks weird. That's one thing I always <laughs> say for remind people. If you see a play and it's and it's, uh, you know, on video, not the same experience. But no, it's not. At least it's a way for us to get the message out. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah. 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 And you know, for those who can't get out, you know, it's, you know. It's better than than not being able to experience it all, at all, and and you could always yeah. you know just um, you could listen to it too because it's it definitely plays well you know um, orally you know like because there's the music and the really wonderful you know characters and and actors and it it just really really comes to life. Oh, but wow, you would have, how you cool! Should, you should see it. You should see it because when the demon shows up, yeah. you got to see the demon. Mm-hmm. The demon has no lines. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, is the demon a metaphor? The demon, one of the things I really wanted to do when creating the Yume character was kind of try to show what the world's like for her. Mm-hmm. You know? When you think about, uh, you know, talking about um, our fellow citizens who are struggling with different mental illnesses and challenges and having visual and oral hallucinations, if you have schizophrenia or if you have PTSD or whatever, mm-hmm. how hard that would be to be trying to live your life and seeing these things around you. So I wanted to make sure to put that in the show, that because of, you may pass and things that have happened that we find out through the course of the show, what's happened to her. She is haunted mm-hmm. literally, from her perspective, she is literally haunted by a demon. No one else can see it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, thank you so much, uh, Michael, for this wonderful conversation, and I'm really looking forward to seeing the play in person. <laughs> um, and... Yeah, and and thanks for you know sort of setting up blacks um, on the right and red all over because I'm like yeah that one needs needs a, a little preface here. 
<laughs> but thank yeah. you for thank yeah. you for the story. Um, I I don't know how anyone could not know anyone that is affected by, um, you know, housing insecurity. But I guess there are there are those people, probably particularly the ones that yeah. don't see those people that are, um, you know, um, underhoused and unhoused. And so, um, well, one of you know, the hopefully things they will be come up during in the park. Mm-hmm. Doing the show is and talking to people is the people that have come up and said that you know their uncle or their aunt or whoever different family members mm-hmm. are unhoused, and that mm-hmm. they haven't seen them in years, um, mm. and that they they really seeing the show kind of put them back in touch with what they focused on is this feeling of shame that they have an unhoused mm-hmm. part. Uh, person so they haven't dealt with them they haven't mm-hmm. tried to seek them out they haven't done anything and were people that have said they were unhoused and they haven't told anybody mm-hmm. you know that they had been in the past and all of these different things and say because they felt a shame around it that they simply shouldn't mm-hmm. it's something that happened yeah. to you it's like being ashamed that you know uh that the ship you were on started taking on water or the people in hawaii in maui you know, it's, you wouldn't feel shame because this this thing happened to you that a fire swept the area, and a lot of those people are going to be unhoused. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's going to be a big issue for the state of Hawaii. But mm-hmm. we have to take away that stigma so that people it will make it just that little bit easier for people to get out of that situation and for us to stop denigrating them for being in that situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly, certainly, because a lot of people say, you know, they're just a paycheck away. Um, you know, I mm-hmm. have, when I was coming up in San Francisco, we were unhoused, um, but we had money, mm-hmm. so we were in motels. And as a grown mm-hmm. person, you know, I was unhoused and um, couch surfing, you know, with my daughter. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah I, you know, I was teaching at a college unhoused. So Right. You know, there are so many people mm-hmm. who have, they have jobs. They, mm-hmm. they have responsibilities and jobs and all of this, but once you slip through, it can be very difficult. As as mm-hmm. you know, it's very difficult to manage to get back. You know, um, and yeah. if we if it's one of those things that more people like you saying that is is um, it's brave. It shouldn't be brave, but it is because if, if more people mm-hmm. would it would say this happened to me, it's like when the women in Congress started standing up and saying that they'd had abortions. What right. if, what It shouldn't have been brave. It should have just been okay. But the fact that they said it, and they were like, this is an important issue. The freedom of choice is important, and my life would be different. I wouldn't be here right now if I hadn't been able to have an abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of changes the conversation. It's the same thing about ha- uh, being unhoused. It changes the conversation that the person you're talking to has experienced it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and I just want to let folks know that last week <laughs> we had um, we we had a um, Charles Curtis Blackwell had a play, um, uh, a readers theater at the Tenderloin Museum, and so we had Alex on who is really? uh, the program. Yeah, he does the programming for the uh, Tenderloin Museum. He was on with Charles and actors. So it was like, it's kind of cool that you would mention the Tenderloin um, Museum, and, and I know it's also, you know, you talk about the Black Hawk in the play, 
um, and, you know, that great history, um, you know, like, so people can go listen to that um, recording of of the a show and this one here, and it's like in the same neighborhood, <laughs> the same set, mm-hmm. two shows in a row, which is pretty cool. <laughs> but um, yeah. that's what's really wonderful about the San Francisco Mime Troupe, you know, all of these years that, you know, it's it's, you know, theater about, the here and now about place, about things we need to be thinking about but aren't talking about. Um, it just makes us more human, you know, the the range of themes and topics and specificity that makes us think about these themes, which are it's always the same thing about, you know, how, how do we develop ourselves as human beings? You know, like you said, you know, mm-hmm. like, polit- you know, making um, – uh, criminal that a person has body functions, you know, like making it so that it's a criminal thing as opposed to making it something that, you know, bathrooms for everybody. Like, why not? <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 And when people are like, oh, well, who knows? They'll be messy. It's a bathroom. It's going to get messy. Somebody might be doing drugs in there. Well, then the problem isn't that the bathroom. The problem is yeah. why is this person um, in the situation wife, where they I feel didn't like hear you drugs? Just now. Did you say something? Oh, I was saying that. Uh-oh. Are uh, you still there? So, oh, yeah. Can you not I hear me? I can't hear you anymore. Oh, no. Oh, I wonder oh, why. Oh, no. Did we lose Michael? Oh, darn. Yep, I guess so. Shoot. Hmm. We lost Michael. So we're going to play this song, Blacks on the Right and Red All Over. And maybe he'll come back. But if not, it was a great conversation. And, uh... Wow, you can watch the play, but you definitely want to go out to the theater so you can treat yourself in both directions. Um, You can watch the Vimeo recording, and you can get out to to the various parks and venues and see it live because you definitely want to see that demon character. (laughs) Oh, there's my... (laughs) My father was a union man Built pipelines across this land Marched for his rights and he got canned Union didn't do him squat That black power crap went to his head Should have stuck to his work instead If he had he would have made more bread Cause you get what you earn from the melting pot So I'm headed where the wind is blowing Any fool can see which way If you want to get rich when you look like me in the land of the free Now my star's on the rise I'm taking the crown That San Francisco hellhole is what I've been waiting for Because I'm black on the right And there are reds all over that Oh, hey, Michael, we lost you there for a moment, hey. so I wanted yeah. to be able to, like, <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, you were making a point, and, and then all of a sudden I couldn't hear you, um, so I want to yeah. give you the opportunity to make your point. <laughs> I'm trying to remember what the point was. I, I'm always I'm always making a point, so I'm like, which, 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 which point was it? Okay, which point was it? I can't it? remember. Hmm. 
<laughs> yeah, that's okay. You can make another point because there's so many important yeah. points. <laughs> but we were talking about criminalizing, you know, certain people in our communities as opposed to, um, you know, promoting, you know, decency and humanity. And that's one thing that um, the Mime Troupe, you know, has been doing for 64 years, you know, sort of um, making uh, people see how, we're all the same, you know, we have so many things in common and it's all about, you know, um promoting those things that we share, you know, um together, you know, to make this world a better place, you know, having access to those important things like housing and food and um uh and wages or, or you know, or income so that, you know, everyone can thrive. Like it's not good for some people to thrive and other people to not thrive and 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 your thriving is connected to my deprivation of like what kind of world is that? Mm-hmm. That's crazy. <laughs> but that's the yeah. way it is, you know? Yeah, that's Absolute what insanity. The the idea, you know, it's it's like when you go back and, and read through what the Panthers wanted to do in terms of mm-hmm. intercommunalism. You know. Yes. The idea that the community has to um take care of itself, benefit from itself, and what that community is, whether it's a city, county, state, uh, uh, country, it has to benefit the working people of that, in that community. They're the ones creating the wealth. They should benefit first from it. That we are, a, we are, all our lives are better if we're taking care of each other and especially those who need it the most. And what we've evolved into in this country is worshiping wealth which is the opposite mm. of what the Panthers wanted. We end up with people who are so focused on having the most expensive this or a collection of watches or always getting the, the, the most expensive phone. I mean, and these are working class people. These are people who have debt. These are people who are, like you said, a couple paychecks away from, from being unhoused, but they're still worshiping wealth. They're still looking at sports figures, movie stars, Again, Elon Musk and people like that and saying, damn, that person, we, we've, instead of saying that this person has too much, we've made the decision kind of as a, as a culture that there is no such thing as too much. You can never be too rich when, in fact, yeah, you can. Um, and that for every dollar that that person has more than they need is, is a dollar that somebody else who needs it doesn't have. You know, capitalists get rich by underpaying their staff. That's how they make money. They underpay the labor. We don't need, nobody should need that much money. But we, in this country, we've, we've raised them to this mythic level. People think that if somebody's rich, they're smart. Those two things aren't necessarily the same. They, they might have inherited that money. They may be good at one thing, but nothing else. You know? They, mm-hmm. that, um, we, have, we have to break that mindset of you know, and like I said, that so often there'll people say, "Yeah, man, I was really, I really, you know, I'm down with with what with what Huey P. Newton was saying, or I'm really into, you know, what what Bernie Sanders and his campaign and all of this." But at the same time, they're still in their daily lives worshiping money and possessions, and it doesn't mean you've got to be out there, you know, uh, handing out food all the time, but at least know that you. Have want to reject that mindset that more that there's never too much that you can never be too rich that possessions define you 
because possessions do not define you. What you do defines you. You are what you do, not what mm-hmm. you say. Because there are right. people who will say a bunch of stuff. What do they do? I love my kids, mm-hmm. but you don't take care of them. You know, what you do right. matters. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's yeah. why I do comedy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, we're happy that you do what you do, and um, yeah, it's um, entertaining, but also thought-provoking, and the kind of thought-provoking that makes people change, um, or continue doing what they're doing. You know, it's, it's encouraging if you're already doing the work, and if you're not doing these, you know, this work, it helps you find community that is doing the work. Because you always have, you know, those wonderful vendors out that can help people get connected, and you know, and mm-hmm. you know, get get you know connected into issues that support whatever you know that particular um, performance is about. So I'm sure you have folks in the audience that are you know working around you know uh, you know sort of housing the underhoused and mental health mm-hmm. and all kinds of good things. So people who are sort of on the fringes and don't know how to get involved, they can get involved right there. Like, you don't have to go home and think yeah. about it. You can get plugged in right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we have on our website, we have lots of stuff. And on the programs, you know, these are uh, research things that we, people that we talked to, organizations that you can contact. We've had a lot mm-hmm. of social workers who've come to the show and just talk about how but they're so grateful of being seen uh, mm-hmm. and having their their perspective presented. So, yeah, one of the things about theater that is great, and that's why I'm saying, you know, if you've got to see a show at home on television, that's better than nothing. But when you go to see a play, you are in a self-selected community. The audience is it, is a community of a bunch of people who have something in common, which is they all decided this is important enough to come and see. And so uh, that that cannot be undervalued because politically you can so often feel isolated. You're like, I'm mad about this, but, you know, I feel like it's just me and maybe my, you know, my husband, we talk about it. Or, or you know, me and my couple of friends. But when you go to a place and you see a bunch of people saying, this is unjust, and we all agree that this is unjust. And we're not, a, we're not you know, a bunch of, you know, uh, crazed red, white, and blue, you know, nuts jumping up and down and talking about how our privilege is being challenged, you know. We're sitting there, we're watching a show, we're laughing, we're crying, we're in, uh, uh, experiencing what the people on stage are experiencing to a certain extent, but we are a community of empathy hmm, and understanding. Nice. And, you know, and that is what a theater audience is. Um, so that's why it's always, I'm always encouraged for just go see shows, go see shows. You know, mm-hmm. if you see the Mind Street, that's great. Our shows are free, so they're the cheapest ones you can see. If we could, we would pay people to come <laughs> because we want to get the message out. But, mm-hmm. you know, there are, there are always shows, like you were talking about, the reading for, for the play at Tenderloin Museum. There are always things mm-hmm. that are trying to explain. The, theater is how the working class explains the world to itself because film and mm-hmm. television is all about money. Theater, easy, you know. Um, and so, yeah, anyway, uh, we're not gonna, <laughs> the world isn't going to change itself. No, it isn't. We have to change it. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Michael, for this wonderful conversation, and I'll see you at the theater. And um, I'm going to try playing this trailer again. Um, 
if people want to watch it, it's on the website. There's a link. Um, <laughs> um, but anyway, um, yeah, yeah, thank you again so much for the lovely conversation. And thanks for the writing. Thanks for the work. Thanks for your commitment, you know, to this, you know, telling the truth, um, you know, in a way that it goes down, you know. It's just a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down, right? So it's like, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yep, put some music behind it and, um, and uh, you know, these political and social truths, you know, um, they they still have their sting, but it's a little easier to digest <laughs> when when it's framed mm-hmm. the way you all frame it. <laughs> yeah, it's like Valina Valina Brown, my wife and collective member. She always says, "Comedy is the delivery system for the harsh truths." Mm, yes, yes, very nice. Still, Valina said hi. <laughs> oh, well. Yeah. So here we're going. We're going to try it again. Um, breakdown um, again is continuing through September fourth. San Francisco Mime Troop. You see me, I see you see me, but you walk on by. I just need a couple bucks. It is a show about what San Francisco is going through, what every city is going through. The mental health crisis. Homelessness. Finding our humanity in this moment. My main character is Sadia. She is a social worker. I'm playing Yume, living on the street and trying to survive as best as she can. But I want to live a life of service And I don't know how to convince you to care The madness is, uh, is a lack of compassion. And oh no, I might be one of those people who walks past homeless people. What is the point of a country if it doesn't care for those who are most in need? And I think that compassion can lead to action. The show is called Breakdown. You will laugh. You will be deeply affected. Don't miss it. I see you see me. Look me in the eye. (laughs) Uh, Thank you so much for joining us for another edition of Wanda's Picks. Be well. Peace and blessings.